I know. <laughs> They're not supposed to turn the mic on that early when I'm talking trash. I'm like, Which is kind of odd because today's topic is, is rather serious, and um, we're, we're in kind of a serious section of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to just say that right off the bat. Uh, as, as a pastor, I am thankful that the Lord um, has called me to preach through passages of Scripture, because if I had my choice, I would do the fun stuff, right? The positive and affirming. But if I'm going to be fair and preach the whole counsel of God, I've got to do the hard passages too, and we are there today in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. I'm going to say something, and I'm saying this for shock value, but it's absolutely true. But I'm saying this from a heart of love, and it is this, according to scripture, many sitting here profess salvation, but do not possess it. Our passage is very clear about that, and it's by no means a, an isolated passage. Our passage implies that many claim salvation and do not have it. We'll see another place in Scripture where uh, our Lord talks about that very thing. But this biblical truth has been observed all through the history of the church, 17th century uh, English Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter wrote a book, a seminal book called The Reformed Pastor. Back then, that word reform didn't mean how we think reform today. It's talking about uh, a different concept altogether. But he noted in that, in that book he was he preached in the same church for I believe 29 years I don't know for sure I'm pulling from the back of my mind but in his book the reformed pastor he noted how surprising it was that he could preach the gospel week in and week out and he would go sit at the kitchen table of people who heard him preach the gospel and upon talking to them realized that they're unconverted and become Christians sitting there at their table, having never been converted in the pew. Our passage today warns us against the presumption that we can have our sin and Jesus too. And we're going to see there, there are three distinct sections uh, of what Paul is, is speaking about today. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, that Paul gives us an example to warn us. In verses 6 to 12... He, he gives us exhortations to direct us. And in verse 13 is just a wonderful encouragement. That's how I want to leave us today, encouraged. So with that, if you'll stand with me, and we'll read Scripture together. Verse number 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual rock, or drink, I'm sorry. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Isn't that stunning? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he lays it out here. First of all, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, and here's his conclusion, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And here's a wonderful promise. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Lord, we want to thank you for your scripture. We want to thank you that um, the writers and our Savior did not back away from hard topics. Lord, I pray that this message being preached in love and with concern will speak to hearts. Maybe some are unconverted sitting here today and need to be converted. Others, Lord, maybe need to really think seriously about how they're entertaining sin in their personal lives. And yet others need to uh, have their thinking changed on how they think about salvation and the fruit of salvation. But Lord, most of all, I pray that you'll be honored and glorified by the fact that we overcome temptation through the power of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you very much. What is Paul trying to say? He's trying to say that you do not think that you can indulge in sin and assume that everything's going to be well. That's basically what he's saying in this passage of Scripture. And he gives an example to warn us. He begins with one of the most amazing episodes in Israel's history and makes a stunning assertion. Now, let me, let me walk through it with you. Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt is a picture of our deliverance from the bondage of sin. And that was one of the most amazing events in all of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, their, their physical sustenance through water and through the rock, or water from the rock and manna from heaven, all came from Christ. Did you see that where Paul said that? Christ did that. It is clear in Scripture that Israel's exodus is a picture of our salvation spiritually, we were delivered from bondage to sin. Spiritually, we receive our sustenance from Christ. And the ordinances are that picture of that sustenance. Baptism and the Lord's Supper where we uh, take the juice and we eat the bread. Uh, that is the picture of Old Testament Israel. If I can sum it up, in other words, they're just like you and me. Their salvation occurred just like yours and mine. Look at what he said. Again, in verse number one, for I do not want you to be aware uh, or unaware, brothers, that our fathers are all under the cloud and pass through the sea. There's salvation. There's the picture of salvation right there, right? 
Then he says, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. A picture of our water baptism. Um, they were baptized into Moses, we're baptized into Christ, right? And they all ate the same spiritual food. We symbolized by the bread, right? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, uh, and he went on to say in John 6, by the way, when he said that, if you eat my flesh, and then at the Passover, he explained more fully what he was talking about, didn't he? This bread is, the, is uh, my body, eat it. And then he said, uh, they all drank the same spiritual drink, the wine, the grape juice that we have here. He said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Drink you all of it. Do you see the parallels there? Exact parallels from, from Israel's history. And then he said, for they drank from the, same, from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. There it is. Salvation, baptism, Lord's Supper, all in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. And Paul is saying that they have a parallel experience with believers. In other words, there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there's a system of thinking that says that um, the, the Old Testament era was the age of Israel, and now we have a distinct break, and we're in the church age, and one day in the future, we're going to have another distinct break, and Israel's going to be the focus of concentration. But that's not what Scripture teaches. It's very clear here that there is continuity between Israel and the church. He says, I do, look at verse number one. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Now he's talking to whom? Gentiles. And the very next word he says, our fathers. The Israelites in the wilderness were fathers to the Gentile for Corinthian church. You see, there's continuity. The church is a continuance of the uh, Old Testament covenant people, Israel. And just as they, Israel, were called to live by faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. They're no different. And so he draws the closest connection between Israel and the church. And the truth is that these things point both in the Old Testament and in the New to the same thing. It all points to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament looks back to Christ and looks forward to his coming. And so the big point that Paul is making is that there is a parallel experience and a continuity between God's people in the Old Covenant and his people in the New. And if you remember, Jeremiah promised that there was going to be a new covenant. You remember that? And Jesus said at the Last Supper, that my blood is the new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about in the old uh, covenant era is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so some might be saying to me, some of you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, well, that's all great. Thanks for the theology lesson, Jared. But how does that affect me? Raise your hand if you, no, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't do that. Here's the stunning conclusion that drops, Paul just drops it like a hammer. Look at verse number five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they are overthrown in the wilderness. Of the generation that came out of Egypt, how many of those millions of people went into the promised land? Two. 
he's drawing a close connection between the Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, and then he drops this point right in. And he's saying that many profess to be in the covenant of Christ's blood will be overthrown. Do you remember? In Israel, they, as they walked out, I could just see it. You going through the ten plagues, yes, we have, our God is God. Going through the Red Sea, look at our amazing God, I, I'm part of this. Then you get to Sinai and you've got the thunderings and the lightnings and everything else going on. And they're like, and, and Moses says, you, uh, God wants this covenant to make this covenant with you. And they're all saying, that, and you can read in scripture, yes, we will follow this covenant. And yet their actions are completely different than their words. Some might be saying, well, is this other places in scripture? All over scripture, let me give you one. I'll just give you one. Jesus, in his very first sermon, in the very first uh, conclusion to his sermon, said these words, not everyone, um, I'm sorry, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, not a few, not a little bit, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now to me, that is a frightening passage of scripture. And this is something as a pastor that animates me to think that people that I preach to week in and week out and, and give the gospel no uncertain terms and then lay out from the, like the second half of Paul's letters what's required when we believe that gospel that people will leave here, this earth, and spend eternity away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very sobering thought, but it's taught all the way through Scripture. These Israelites... Uh, They benefited from the covenant with Moses, the law of Sinai. With their mouths, they confessed their fidelity to the law. They claimed to have faith in God, but their actions actually told the truth. And the church today is a new covenant community. And many today who claim and even appear to be trusting Christ, but their lives show a different story. As Paul warns the Corinthians, so too he warns us to make our calling and election sure. And so be aware of the dangers of presumption. And then he gives some exhortations from that example of Israel. Let's just look at them very quickly. Verse number six, we see the first one. Paul gives four illustrations. According to verse number six, this functions as examples. Now these things took place as examples for us. So they're examples. They're not complicated, are they? They're really straightforward. They're straightforward challenges to stay away from sin. And you know what? Sometimes we just need to hear that, don't we? Stop that. Like the old Bob Newhart counseling skit. Remember that one? Just stop it. Okay, well, half of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we just need to be told to stop it and not play with fire. 
the first thing we see, first warning, is idolatry. idolatry. Look at verse number 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this refers to Exodus 32. You remember the situation? They watched the ten plagues totally decimate Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was destroyed. Now they're at Sinai. Now think about Sinai for a minute. Hebrews tells us there was thundering. There, were, there was lightning. There were smoke and earthquakes and the sound of, of many trumpets. You remember that? And it says that they were frightened. They even told Moses, tell God to tone it down. We're scared. Moses goes up into all of that, and he's up there a long time, 40 days and nights, and they're getting a little bit bored or nervous or something. And so what do they do? They come to Aaron and say, make us gods. So he gathers up their jewelry, and he throws it in the fire, and out runs a calf, golden calf, right? Well, that's what he told Moses. And he says, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And what do they do? They have a great celebration of worship and adoring and worshiping the golden calf who is their representation of God. And the comment of the text is that the people during the worship, as part of their worship, sat down to eat, that's one fleshly appetite, and rose up to play. They were worshiping an idol. That that phrase, worship to play, is a euphemism to talk about um, sexual play is what that's talking about there. And you will remember, right, we're talking about Corinth here. He's writing to the people of Corinth that the, um, they similarly, the church there, had been converted in a town rife with pagan idolatry. There were temples all over Corinth. There were prostitutes everywhere. There was sexual immorality. And some of these Corinthians, remember what I said earlier? Some of these Corinthians were tradesmen, and the trade guilds were all dedicated to God. And these Corinthians were going into these trade guilds and participating in the worship of that God in order to sustain their livelihoods. Pragmatism, right? And these, these were integral part elements of the pagan idolatry in the temples of Corinth. So, as we'll see, God willing next week in verse number 14, Paul tells him to stay away from idolatry, flee idolatry. Now, I know what you're saying. Yeah, Jared, we don't have idols at our house. We don't have literal statues or images, but we have a real idolatry problem. Did you know that? You know what the greatest idol that we struggle with is? Self. That's the biggest idol that we struggle with. And just like the Corinthians who were having the Lord's Supper on Sunday and eating bread and drinking the cup and then on Monday eating and drinking in the temple of the idols. Or the Israelites who would eat manna and drink the water from the rock then at the same time, eat and drink as part of a pagan worship as they adore the golden hat calf. We must be careful not to give vent to the passions of our flesh in pursuit of the worship of ourselves. 
How do we know that we're worshiping an idol? The idol of self. Well, let me ask you this. How often do you comfort yourself or indulge in, an, in, in the flesh? You know, churches, a lot of churches cater to the idol of self, don't they? It's nonstop therapeutic messages how to be, that, that really all cater to this idol of I want to be happy. You know, messages about marriage and family and relationships over and over, how to be emotionally well-adjusted. It's just, it's therapeutic messages that cater to the idol of self. Let's all just love one another. Let's never talk about sin and holiness. That's not God's agenda. God's agenda is for us to become like Jesus Christ. And so we give the good stuff along with the warnings, right? Are we indulging in the idol of self? Second thing that we see here in verse number eight is sexual immorality. We must not indulge, verse number eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now Paul has in mind here Numbers 25, where the people of Israel began to practice sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. Interestingly, again, as part of the pagan worship of this Canaanite god Baal, or if you're over in Israel, Baal, is the way they would say it over there, there. God destroyed many of them, 23,000 in a single day. In a similar way, the hypersexualized culture at Corinth was also bound up with vile practices to the temple of Aphrodite and Apollo that dominated the city. Sexual sin, as we, we, we've seen in the book of 1 Corinthians, was a real problem in the Christians' lives. Now, we don't do that, do we? We don't do that. We don't have a problem in our culture and society with sex. We don't have a problem in our church with sex. It, actually, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's normalized. It's made into entertainment. I, you remember back when Charlie's Angels was a scandal? It's laughable now, isn't it? Pornography is epidemic. The norms of our culture have shifted so that what is acceptable socially and culturally is very different than it once was. And there is a kind of sexual obsession. Our sexual obsession, by the way, let me say this. Sexual obsession is nothing more than a worship of self. We're obsessed with sex because we're obsessed with ourselves. And sex in our culture's mind is not about love. It's not about giving or serving or celebrating somebody else. It's all about expressing ourselves and gratifying ourselves and worshiping ourselves, isn't it? There's that idolatry coming out again. And I love the way Christians justify it. Yeah, I know that there's this in this show, but I'm doing it for the entertainment value and it doesn't affect me. Oh, really? All right. Look at the, look at the, the third uh, example, the third exhortation, putting the Lord to the test. Verse number nine, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did 
and were destroyed by serpents. Now, what's going on there? Well, that's, that's Numbers 21. The people were complaining about the provision of food that God had given them in the wilderness to care for them. You know, manna every day. Tasted like coriander, I think is what the Bible says, right? Um, now, I don't even know what that tastes like. They were complaining about the provision that God gave them. They wanted more variety. They wanted more spice. They complained and complained and questioned God's goodness, trying his patience. They had no concern for pleasing God, only for pleasing themselves. They did not use their new freedom to serve him better, but to demand that he serve them better. But we don't ever do that. We, we, don't, we don't ever complain about God's provision for us, do we? We never complain about the hardships of following Jesus. We, we, um, we just live licentiously, don't we? With license, I guess is the best word. You know, this is the age of grace. We are free and God is forgiving. We can't lose our salvation so why not get everything out of life we can? Get a little spice in our life. Has that invaded the church? And then the last one. This is one as a pastor that um, I understand Moses on this one, by the way. Verse number 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Each time the Israelites grumbled or, or complained, that's the word complained, even after God delivered them from Egypt and provided for all their needs during the Exodus, after they complained, after all of that, uh, he uh, judged them. Now, none of us are com- tempted to complain, are we? We want bigger, more dramatic experiences of power, supernatural dynamics of God in our lives, don't we? We want revival, and we want a yesterday. We want Billy Graham in the pulpit. Instead, we got to settle for Jared Edgecombe. We want our pews filled. We want everything fixed and nothing changed. It's hard to be satisfied sometimes for just let's get together and let's sing hymns and let's pray and let's uh, read the Bible and let's uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. The means, by the way, which the Lord laid out that we grow. We want something spectacular. We want something spicy. We want something that seems supernatural, not this mundane We want our kids to be happy. (laughs) We want our marriages to be harmonious. We want our lives to be prosperous. And when we're not, then all of a sudden my sense of entitlement bubbles over and I begin to grumble. Don't you? And I begin to think to myself, you know, other people are to blame. It's their fault. And maybe truth be told, Jesus isn't all that he cracked up to be. Where's my best life now? 
What's with all this suffering? We don't do that. But Paul said we must not grumble. Some of them did. And there's a sober warning. He said don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know what he says? Paul does not think that complaining is a small thing. And neither did Moses. Complaining is huge. It's an ungratefulness to a great degree. But look at verse number 11. Because verse number 11 gives us reasons for these examples. Now these things happen to them as an example. They are written down for our instruction. That word instruction, by the way, means something similar to admonition. It's an admonishment. On whom the end of the ages has come. These punishments that came upon these disobedient Israelites were not only an example to follow uh, to fellow Hebrews, but they were an example to the believers in every age. And more than that, they were given for our instruction or warning for the benefit of those Christians in the ages to come. Look at verse number 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Corinthians <coughs> were viewing things from the perspective of this present evil age instead of the age to come. The fate of countless Israelites who likewise were overconfident and filled with pride should be a warning to the Corinthians. Whenever the Israelites engaged in idolatry, they came under God's judgment. Let me ask a question real quick. Are you taking heed to your life? Do not be like the arrogant, unbelieving Israelites who assumed that they could have their sin and have Jesus too. It doesn't work that way. It's Jesus and nothing else. I want to leave you with an encouragement. Look at the verse number 13. What a wonderfully encouraging verse. Paul said, well, let me preface this real quick. Are you struggling with sin right now? Are you to the point where you are almost a little bit discouraged thinking, man, every time I get up, I get knocked back down by this sin. And you feel like giving up. You feel like it's useless. Like, I fight this every day, and I'm fighting a losing battle, and it's a real struggle. Well, look at what Paul says in, in verse number 13. He says this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes temptation and sin just seems overwhelming, doesn't it? We gave three wonderful promises here, encouragements. Number one, your temptations are not unique. You're not a special case. Satan loves to trap us into thinking that our temptations are unique. I, I spent one summer working at camp. Uh, I was a camp counselor Every week I had a cabin full of kids, uh, teenage boys. And I, after services at night, I would get chances to, opportunities to counsel these boys. And invariably, every week, I would have several of them come to me for counseling who assume 
that they're the only one that ever was tempted with that temptation. And what I want, I didn't tell them, but what I thought is, you know, I've been dealing with this for six weeks now. Every, every time you feel like it's a unique temptation, and it's not. It's a common temptation. Because when you believe that your temptation is unique, you begin to conclude this. Well, the usual remedies are not going to work for me. There really is no help for me because I'm a unique case. And what Paul says is, no, that's not true. No temptation has overtaken you, but it's common. Okay, well, how's that, how's that good news? Well, look at the second encouragement. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Isn't that wonderful? That is wonderful. Christians are not powerless in the face of temptation. It's another lie that Satan loves to trap us with. There's nothing you can do. You're helpless. You'll never overcome this temptation. You're in the grip of this thing. You're stuck. And so when that thought hits you, and I'm going to ask who it's hit, because I know it's hit all of us at one time or another, hadn't it? You can just nod a little bit, because I know it's true. What's the temptation when you get to that point? What's the temptation? Well, I might as well just give up the struggle, right? It's no use. I'll just give up the struggle. I'll just sign a truce of sin. But Paul says, no, it's wonderful. Your, your temptation's common, and your temptation will never be greater than you can bear. And then number three is this. There's a way of escape that God provides in his kindness and providence that we may be able to endure our temptation. There's always a way to escape. The temptation's never too hard. There's always a way to escape. There's always a way out. You can turn the TV off. You can click away from the website. You can get filters on your devices. You can confess your sin to a trusted brother or sister. Get the accountability you need. You can cry out for help. You can get out of there. You don't have to keep playing with fire. You can flee temptation. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you, Scripture says. You can cry out to the Lord in the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your temptations. Flee your sin. Stop playing with, with sin. This is good news, isn't it? For those of us who are locked in this daily combat with our sin, we are not powerless. That's the promise of the Word of God to you. You're not trapped, dear believer in Jesus. So go, fight on, hear the warnings, flee to thin ice, hear the exhortations to stop it, take action and make change. Why? Because the grace of God has provided you, for you hope that change will come. Amen? Wonderful, wonderful news. Don't give up the fight. Resist temptation to sin. Lord, the Bible says that we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. And then we learn 
that that same, tem- that same high priest, Jesus Christ, is there with us to empower us to overcome temptation. Praise be to God. I ask, as I've been asking many times this week, that you will uh, allow all of us to take serious uh, accounting of our lives. Test our lives, Lord, to see if we're in Christ. For those who may be wavering, I pray that they'll get it settled today, Lord, before it's too late. For those who are weary and tired in the midst of temptation and they feel like that it's just um, uh, wash, rinse, and repeat in their life because they're getting constantly knocked down with sin, I ask that you'll give them confidence in Jesus Christ and that they will overcome the sin, that they will experience the joy of overcoming sin through the power of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we walk out from here that your praise will ever be on our lips. In Christ's name, amen.